In this lecture, I'd like to think about the ontological dimensions of the mystery of the incarnation and the philosophical implications of classical Christology. Can we speak truly of Christ, the person of the Son, as both true God and true man, if we are incapable of positive philosophical and natural discourse concerning both the divine nature and the human nature? By human nature, I mean that essence in virtue of which we are each human and in virtue of which God, who became human, is one in nature with us. In what follows, I will present a brief account of the inward form of the classical use of the communication of idioms in Neo-Chalcedonian Christology. After this, I will argue that the assignments we make of nature terms to Christ in virtue of his divinity and humanity respectively although based in divine revelation specifically and associated with a central mystery of the faith, also require implicitly that we are naturally capable of thinking out philosophically what it means coherently to speak of the divine and human natures metaphysically. In brief, Chalcedonian Christology is not reducible to, of course, but implies recourse to a metaphysics of divine and human nature. In addition, if we can conceive of a notion of human nature in Christ, we must also be able to distinguish nature in a state of grace, nature in a state of sin, and a state of pure nature. Were we unable to do this, we would in turn be unable to think about the hypostatic union, and so the core mystery of Christianity in a constructive fashion. So let me begin with the first part of the argument. Chalcedonian Christology and the Ontology of the Communication of Idioms. Single-subject Christology is derived from and enshrined in the basic givens of the New Testament as apostolic teaching. Christ is one person, subsisting in two natural modes of being. A case in point is to be found in Philippians 2, 6-11, where the pre-existence of Christ is affirmed as the Son who, though he was in the form of God, took the form of a servant, and as man became obedient unto death, even so as to be exalted in the resurrection. The mystery of the descent of the pre-existent Son into humanity and subsequent exaltation in resurrection culminates in the acknowledgement by the nations of his divine identity. He is given a name above every other name by the Gentiles, Lord or Yahweh, who recognize in him the God of Israel denoted by the Tetragrammaton of Exodus 3, 14 through 15. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, always the same single subject, taking the form of a servant, being formed in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself unto death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The fact that every knee will bend in adoration of him suggests that the prophecies which use this language in Isaiah 45, 5 through 23, concerning the universal recognition of Israel's God by all Gentile nations, is now coming to pass in the recognition of Jesus of Nazareth as Lord, that is to say, as one who is both God and man, a man who was crucified and resurrected so as to reconcile the human race to the Father. 
Evidently, already in this primal confession of Christological faith, we perceive the, the nucleus of the classical use of the communication of idioms as expressive in turn of the ontology of what would eventually be confessed in dogmatic conceptual form 400 years later at the Council of Chalcedon. Christ is a singular subject of Pauline ascription to whom are attributed characteristics associated both with God, signified here by the form of God, the name of Yahweh, and being a subject of worship, and those of a human being, signified here by being the suffering servant, practicing, practicing intentional obedience, subjection to death as separation of body and soul, physical resurrection, and glorification. There is, of course, a correspondence between this linguistic pattern of ascriptions and the ontology it implies. Only if Christ is a single person who is both God and man can formulations such as this one make any sense. The person in question is pre-existent and divine since he exists in union with the Father prior to his historical experience of being human, but the person in question is also the singular bearer of traits derived from each nature or form of being as Lord and as man. It's significant to note that the authors of the Council of Chalcedon chose to denote the forms of Paul's, the, the use of form, morphe in Greek, in Paul's Philippians 2, 6 through 11, in ontological and semantic terms of nature or phusis, terms having echoes in Hellenistic metaphysics. There are remote uh, inspirations here from Gregory of Nazianzus, from uh, John of Antioch, uh, but the proximate inspiration for the pronounced emergence of this pattern of interpretation is the famous tome of Leo in his letter 28 to Flavian. In this text, Leo does two things theologically that are of capital importance for the subsequent history of Christology. First, he interprets the form of God and the form of the servant by making use of the Latin notion of natura, which would be translated as phusis into the Greek of the council, and in doing so, notes that the two natures are united but distinct, neither separated nor confused. This language is clearly ontological in implication and entered into the council's formulations themselves. It suggests that God became human without ceasing to be God and without abolishing, altering, or in any way doing violence to what it is to be human. After all, the dangers of Apollinarianism and monophysitism were chief on the horizon in the minds of the conciliar fathers and indeed in the mind of Leo himself. On the contrary, Leo affirms that God is the most human of all of us. No one is more human than God. This idea suggests there are not, there is not only no concurrence or mutual rivalry of divine and human natures in Christ, but in fact, there is a present, a, sim, a simultaneous plenitude, simultaneous plenitude of complementarity, of imminence and transcendence simultaneously. I mean, the deity of God, wholly imminent within humanity, the, the deity of God, wholly transcendent of the humanity, the plenitude of humanity present with the plenitude of deity. The more God is present in our human nature, even by personal union with our nature, the more naturally human we are, as is perceptible in Christ. This perspective of Chalcedon was in turn self-consciously adopted and re-articulated 
by Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae. Aquinas effectively notes three norms or rules that govern the right application of the communication of idioms, each of which has an ontological correspondent with, with, with significance for our consideration of philosophical metaphysics. First, Aquinas notes that all attributes of divine nature and human nature of Christ pertain to the single personal subject of the incarnate word. That is to say, whether we speak of the eternal generation of the Son or his human birth in time as man, we attribute such characteristics of either nature only to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, a single subject and person. He was born before all ages of the Father. He was born in time of the Virgin Mary. He is the author of creation and the giver of eternal life, but he is also subject to human torture, suffering, and death. Second, the attributes of the two natures are not rightly predicated of each other and should not be confused, for they remain ontologically distinct. The divine nature of Christ is eternal, not temporal, immutable, not subject to alteration, impassable, not subject to suffering, all-knowing, not subject to nescience. The human nature of Christ is present in time and place, not subject to omnipresence, finite, not subject to infinity, temporal, not subject to conditions of eternal pre-existence. The human nature of Jesus, then, is not omnipresent or pre-existent or eternal, while the divine nature is not a historical process, not subject to time or subjection to created realities. Third, all nature terms, be they divine or human, can be employed grammatically as subject terms to denote the, sub the single subject Christ, if and only if they denote the personal subject considered under the aspect of a nature. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, we can rightly say, God gestated in the womb of the virgin, where we indicate by God a nature term derived from the divinity of Christ, the single subject Jesus. God was born in poverty. God suffered personally on the cross. God truly died on the cross. These are all necessary statements of fact and are orthodox because the term God is a nature term denoted here, used here to denote a specific person, the second person of the Son. This means it is not true to say the divine nature was born, the divine nature suffered, the divine nature died, or the Father suffered, or the Holy Spirit suffered, but only the Son, who is God and man, was born, suffered and died as a divine person who is truly human like us. And therefore, God truly was born, suffered, and died. Likewise, we may say, pointing at Jesus, and, and Aquinas says you could point at him, he uses the expression, this man here created the world so as to indicate Jesus Christ through the denominations made possible by his humanity, this man, without implying that his human nature was an instrument of the creation. And that is different, of course, than saying the human nature of Jesus created the stars. This man created the stars is a different claim. Or we may say this man obeyed in order to save us without implying that his human obedience is constitutive of his eternal generation from the father as the eternal son. To say this man saved us through his obedience need not imply that there is eternal obedience in God. 
It should be noted that these three principles, singularity of subject predication, non-confusion of nature predication, use of nature predication to denote singular subject, can help us delineate the shape of a mystery in human language. But they are not meant to render the mystery of the incarnation, life, suffering, and death, or resurrection of Christ, fully transparent to human reason. Nor do they simply leave these features of his existence unintelligible and opaque. Rather, the rules I'm alluding to help us zone in on where the mystery is uh, in both its partial intelligibility and its partial hiddenness. These, these norms serve instead then to help us not to explain away the mystery, but to help us identify the inward territory and boundaries of the mystery of the faith, and they help us exclude erroneous or counterfeit formulations. And it seems to me, in turn, one can identify three important ontological features that emerge from this inscape of mystery, rightly to be thought of as Christological truths, that in turn have implications for philosophical metaphysics without being reducible to the latter. So I'm trying to pass from linguistic norms of orthodox description to ontological implications for theology to ontological implications for philosophy. The first ontological feature of the mystery pertains to the person of the Son. He can begin to subsist as man by harmonization in the womb of Mary without ceasing to be truly God. Consequently, precisely as one who is God personally, he can also become the subject, he can also become subject to all that is human, including birth, suffering, and death, which he truly experiences personally as the Son without ceasing to be unchangingly divine and one of the Holy Trinity. There are various soteriological aspects to this mysterious, mysterious truth that the eternal son could be human without ceasing to be both son and God. For example, God truly shows his divine solidarity with us by freely identifying with our human limitations. And he can unite his ineffable, perfect divinity and indiminishable saving power to us even in the ontologically worst circumstances of our human suffering. Everything we have as human, including our acute suffering in, in death, becomes his so that everything he has as God, which is indiminishable in him, can become ours. Behind this soteriological claim of the divine solidarity, we confront the mystery of God's gratuitous freedom to identify with us. It is grounded in his eternal identity, bliss, and perfect activity. The mystery from before the foundation of the world is personal, good, wise, and loving, and it can enter into our situation in perfect solidarity with us without ceasing to possess those features of perfection which can effectively save us. Second, as noted, the two natures of Christ are not confused or mixed, but they also are not competitive rivals or mutually exclusive. Christ does not have to cease being God or freely practice canonic self-limitation in order to be human, nor does he need to take on a truncated or artificial human nature in order to be God. 
There are profound metaphysical implications to this claim. For God is not a rival to his creation, seemingly because God is in no way exterior to his creation as creator, but it's more intimate to created being than it is to itself, or in the language of Augustine, he is more interior to the effect of the creation, as Aquinas calls it, the esse commune of created being, than it is to itself, without being identical with that creation as such. This suggests that God can step out onto the stage of creation as a human being and enter the drama of our created history without either ceasing to be God, so not with, so without self-alienation through canonic process, but also without doing violence to human nature, as if he could only assume a body but not a soul, because a human soul would be in rivalry to his deity. As we, as I've noted above, no one is more human than Christ, who is also truly God. Furthermore, the human nature of Jesus can be subordinate to and the instrument of his divine person. It can be the humanity of the word without being in any way diminished in its activity as human, as if the humanity of Christ would need to be purely passive so that the divinity could act in it. Rather, the instrumentality and harmonious subordination of the humanity to the divinity is one of act to act, a fully alive dynamism subordinate to the more plenary, perfect actuality and indiminishable perfection of deity. The human nature of Jesus, his human actions of knowledge and love as man are now expressive of his personal identity as God the Son, who manifests his eternal life and presence in and through his most human actions, words, gestures, teachings, sufferings, and miracles. It is God the Son who shines forth radiantly in the most human life of Jesus as the child in the crib and as the crucified of Golgotha. Consequently, God truly expresses who God is, the eternal sonship of God always shining forth in our world, the very deity of God manifest particularly in and through God's human life from conception and birth and infancy to young adulthood, to apostolic life, teaching, preaching, miracle, suffering, to human death, in human suffering, and unto human resurrection. This is all the vehicle for the perfect expression in our human nature of the sonship of the Lord that shines forth. Third, we can infer from the third of the rules of predication above an ontological mystery first identified by the Cappadocian fathers. All works of the divine persons are works conducted through the medium of a nature. Since there are two natures in Christ, we may employ either nature to denote the single subject of the person. All works of a nature are works conducted by a personal subject. So in every personal act of Christ, be it divine or human, it is always the one person who is manifest. The one is a principle from which, uh, from which, while the other, sorry, thinking about nature and person, one is a principle from which, that's personhood, while the other is a principle through which, that's nature. It's always from a person, it's always through a nature that every activity originates. 
So, for example, in the mystery of the Holy Trinity, this is the original context of the Cappadocian thinking. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operate in virtue of or in and through the medium of their shared divine nature and life as God, three persons operating in virtue of the shared and unique divine nature, while the Son alone operates also by virtue of or in and through the medium of his human nature as man. So only the person of the Son operates in a human nature. All three persons operate in a divine nature. There are significant features to this third idea. First, evidently from a Christian and therefore Trinitarian point of view, all things, all things in being, are ultimately personal in origin. The divine nature that has given rise to all things and that providently governs human history in view of salvation is a reality that is personal in nature. Before, our, before everything else, there are hypostases. The universe exists from persons and in view of personal existence as the summit of created being. Our personal life, along with that of the angels, in communion with God and in and communion with Christ, is the summit of the meaning of not only uh, the creation, but we could say of, of being created, of, of created being. It has a personalistic realization in its summit, just as it has a personalistic origin in the divine life of the Trinity. Second, in personal realities, all nature terms must be interpreted in a way that is in conformity with, but also not in opposition to personal identity and vice versa. There's never a dialectic or distinction of coextensivity between personhood and nature. Negatively speaking, what am I, what am I excluding here? Negatively speaking, it's a great mistake to oppose natural identity for example, being human by nature or being a biological animal, for example, with personal identity, as if one must either advocate for an ontology of persons or an ontology of natures. One way to make this error is to claim that a serious study of human nature does away with personhood and personal dignity is a mere folklore concept from pre-modern culture. Another way to do so is to claim that the acknowledgement of human personhood and of personal freedom requires that we delimit or deny the reality of nature as a normative concept for free human action or thought, as if the personal agent could or even must determine or mutate his nature in a plastic fashion in the service of his personal freedom or will to power. In reality, all personal acts of knowledge and love are also intrinsically natural acts stemming from the natural principles of human knowledge and free will. This is true in Christ's own human knowledge and freedom, as he is naturally human in thought and action, which are in turn reflective of his uncreated divine life, his eternal natural wisdom and natural love as God. So having articulated some of the, you might say, parameters of theological ontology, I turn now in the second part of this lecture to the natural grounds of mystery, the Christological presupposition of a philosophical metaphysics. Here I'd like to argue for the following thesis. In light of the ontology implied by the classical use of the communication of idioms, we can affirm that Chalcedonian Christology presupposes and inevitably makes use of various principles of classical metaphysics, in particular the notions of human nature and the notion of pure nature, 
become necessary for a coherent Christology. Now, I, I do want to argue that pure nature is a theological notion, but it's one made subsequent to a philosophical notion of human nature. The first principle to observe is that when we speak of the divine nature or the human nature of Christ, we must qualify that we are speaking of a theological mystery, not a mere truth of philosophical reasoning. Even if we do know something of what human nature is and how to write and how to speak rightly of the divine nature philosophically in distinction from or prescinding from divine revelation, the divine and human natures of Christ are formally mysterious in themselves and approached primarily with the help of divine revelation. The nature in virtue, in virtue of which Christ is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit pertains to the essence of the Trinity. The nature in virtue of which he is one with us designates our human essence as redeemed and sanctified in the new Adam, subject to atoning death and eschatological exaltation. This is why Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 22, rightly notes that the mystery of what it means to be human is only ultimately resolvable by reference to Christ in whom are present the plenitude of grace and the perfection of human nature by and within the life of that grace. Having produced this warning against a naive form of theological rationalism, we can now proceed to a second and more essential point. The mysteries of Christ's divine nature and human nature, so I'm making a strong claim now, are literally inconceivable or intellectually inaccessible for us unless we are also capable of some form of natural reflection regarding the nature of God, the creator, conceived by way of analogy, at least in the Thomistic school, as well as the structure of human nature conceived univocally in the Thomistic school as denoting something universal in all human beings that is specifically the same. Now, the reasons for these two strong claims can be stated, uh, I think, clearly. So let me consider the divine and human natures in turn. And my argument is, without a metaphysics philosophically specific that is able, without a metaphysical capacity to speak in a reasonably, a specifically reasonable way about the divine nature or the human nature, uh, it's of human of human beings. It's difficult to cooperate with the grace of Christological revelation. Taking the divine nature. If the human being cannot think naturally about the existence of God and the nature of God as creator, however indirectly, apophatically, or analogically, then the very idea of the incarnation conceived in Chalcedonian terms, it seems to me, becomes literally unthinkable, inconceivable. The argument stated succinctly runs thus. Every human being is naturally intellectually active by means of conceptual reflection and can only consider various realities as objects of knowledge in an active way if he or she has some conceptual purchase on the reality in question. The objective conceptual knowledge in question is derived from reflection on the realities that human beings experience and not from infused a priori concepts. So I'm invoking a kind of allusion to an Aristotelian concept of the Asian intellect that derives conceptual understanding of objects from the field of experiences. This natural process being alluded to is not destroyed by divine revelation or the operative activity of grace in the human person. Consequently, if a person is to turn toward God intellectually and freely under the prior instigation of grace, 
and its guiding influence, and in relation to specifically revealed objects of faith not otherwise accessible outside of Revelation. Then the person must also do this actively by natural means of reflection, subject to and subordinate to the truths of revelation and the movements of grace. However, if there is no manner in which human beings can naturally actualize their capacity to know objects of revelation in any respect as objects of natural knowledge, especially objects of knowledge pertaining to God, such that there is no natural point of contact in which grace and revelation may address human beings so that under grace they may naturally orient themselves actively as learners toward the divine life of God, then either the divine revelation is so alien to human knowledge that the human being simply cannot actively consider it, and so we cannot think actively about the divine revelation of God, and thus grace is violent to human nature and to human intellectual life, or the knowledge communicated by grace provides an effect not only the supernatural object and inclination of faith, Christ was in God reconciling the world to himself, but also the full natural capacities, objects, and inclinations of knowledge. In short, all natural knowledge of God is simply a gift of grace. And so the interior motions of the intellect toward its connatural object are provided uniquely by grace. And in this case, the real distinction of grace and nature is effectively collapsed. Divine revelation is no longer a grace, but a form of infused knowledge innate to the human person, and nature is always already epistemologically, cognitively, gnosiologically on its way to the Trinity prior to the gift of grace, because the gift of grace simply is the condition of possibility of the realization of nature. So you either get a kind of naturalistic integralism, or you get a purely extrinsic uh, fideism. Now, this argument applies more generally to the human being's capacity to arrive by its active powers at a natural knowledge of God, but it applies in a specific way to the case of our consideration of Jesus Christ as a personal subject possessing divine nature and having attributes predicated of him because they would be otherwise thoroughly unintelligible as divine attributes. Even if the divine nature of the Son is a mystery of faith, and we say that he possesses in common with the Father and the Spirit a divine nature that is made known to us by way of divine revelation, its reception as mystery into human thought requires an analog concept drawn from philosophical understanding that allows the human intellect to orient itself towards God. For were this not the case, the active rational judgment of faith that Christ, who is truly God, possesses the fullness of divine nature, or that Christ is God, would stand completely outside the ambit and horizontal range of all natural capacities of human knowing. In this case, the, the gift of faith would be so extrinsic to the human intellect as to be inassimilable, and the active act of faith by which man is justified, Jesus is Lord, would not be possible. Positive knowledge of the divine nature is a natural requirement if the human person is to be in obediential potency to the gift of grace that permits him to know and affirm that Christ is God. Now, in, in employing the, the notion of obediential potency, I'm suggesting that we have no natural intellectual inclination to know the Trinity as such in, and its essential unity. 
but that we do have a natural inclination to think about God analogically and about the divine nature that we can, and that we can therefore be elevated by grace so, as, so that this natural inclination to know God uh, can be placed in the service of reflection on the mystery of Trinitarian life and Trinitarian unity of being as such. This means that only if there is a metaphysical range of knowledge can we affirm the existence of God and, sorry, this means that only if there is a metaphysical range of knowledge that can affirm the existence of God coherently and demonstrably as a truth of reason, is it possible to develop a reasoned account of the intellectual possibility of faith and in turn also an intellectually self-conscious dogmatic theology. Dogmatic reflection on Christ without metaphysics would be in this respect an insincere act of the mind by which the activity of faith would orient the mind towards an end purely extrinsic to any conditions of human thought, leaving the latter, human reason, imminent to itself without intrinsic reference to divine truth, even despite the presence of the grace of faith. To give a, pre a precision to this notion, we can clarify what must be the case for there to be a natural capacity for faith in the mind without there being a purely rational derivation of the object or act of supernatural faith, which, of course, I want to reject, so-called epistemological Pelagianism. For surely, in saying obediential potency, I'm not claiming there's any latent capacity of the intellect by metaphysics to naturally elevate itself into this supernatural act of faith or the knowledge of the Trinity. On the one hand, there must be a, spe a specification of human thinking by conceptual reason and contemplative judgment that allows human beings to think about God, the creator, in truth by means of natural and philosophical reflection, natural or naturally philosophical, because there's natural philosophical reflection on God that all people can are capable of in some fashion. This natural specification is not identical with that of supernatural faith, which orients human intelligence towards the awareness and understanding of God as Holy Trinity, and eventually may terminate in the beatific vision of God, all of which is made possible only by grace. But the former natural specification is taken up into, preserved, and made use of within the activity of faith, even if it can in no way produce or initiate the latter supernatural act. Under grace and within grace, the natural capacity to think about God is taken up into the act of faith and moved within this act toward God as known both supernaturally and naturally. The reason that the natural predisposition is essential is not because it causes the faith, but because without it, faith would be violent to the human intellect and nature would be unable to move itself under grace and within grace toward God. The natural and supernatural specifications of the human intellect in regard to God remain distinguishable, but in no way extrinsic to one another. They function in harmony, hierarchical coordination, and instrumental subordination. The revelation of God addresses the natural human desire for perfect knowledge of God, even the philosophical desire to see God but elevates this inclination of nature to a higher plane and provides it with a new life and dynamic specification. Likewise, the basic commit theological commitment to Chalcedonian Christology requires a metaphysics of human nature that permits us to identify a structure of human nature attributed univocally to all human beings. It's rather important that we are all identically and equally human in essence. Nobody here is sort of partially human. 
That is to say, there is an essence of human nature, one adopted by God in the incarnation in solidarity with us truly, that is present universally by way of identity of kind in all human beings. Not only do we share a common nature, but God shares a common nature with us as one who has become human. Now, this must be the case for at least two reasons for theological motives. First, if we cannot, this claim about a common knowledge of a common human nature needs to be clearly true, I think, for two theological motives. First, if we cannot in any way identify the essential nature of man in its universal specification, making use of the instruments of natural human reason, then we also cannot in any way understand what it means to say that God became a human being, having a human nature in solidarity and plenary identification with us. I mean, it would simply remain extrinsic to the native capacities of the intellect to understand what it would mean to say God has become one of us as a human being, like us in all things but sin, for we would not know what a human being is, or the concept of human nature would be intrinsically problematic. And so Christology would be wholly alien to our capacity to think about God's solidarity with us as one of us. In this case, the universal soteriological significance of the incarnation becomes eclipsed. For what does it even mean to say that God became truly human or that this, that this has a universal meaning for the whole human race? I mean, maybe it's tribal. God became human just for those people who are convinced that there is a metaphysical sameness in all those who are human. Or maybe he, there is no metaphysical sameness. He only became a certain kind of human, one who has consciousness. He didn't become human for the embryos. He didn't become human for certain kinds of people who have phenomenological features that don't fit into the tribe, maybe non-Jews, or I don't know, maybe non-males, whatever. We can make up the specifications. So if, in fact, all entities that we call human share some common feature that God has maintained a solidarity with, we need to, um, to affirm a common human nature and avoid a merely extrinsic Christological designation of human nature, which would render the claims of the universal import of the incarnation unfeasible. We don't want to reduce God's humanity to mere phenomenological appearances of a seeming sameness, for the claim is much stronger. God has truly revealed that he has become one of us in a universal and that there are universal consequences. Christ's divine attempt to draw the human race into unity, this is a second argument, would be ineffective if we cannot ourselves even recognize, potentially under grace, what human nature is, so as to render a requirement for basic universal human solidarity possible politically. There's an ecclesiological, political, and corporate destiny to the fact that God became human, that we are therefore all subject to redemption and to communion by grace. For grace can heal and sharpen our natural capacity to identify the essence of man. And yes, the common essence of man, our human nature, could be opaque to us without the active work of grace in us. But the church's philosophical and natural law traditions serve to, under grace, sharpen our philosophical sensibilities so that we understand that, you might say, atom or unit in virtue of which God is truly one of us, and in virtue of which we are capable of ecclesial communion as a corporate body of human persons having the same nature. Now, I turn finally to the subject of uh, pure, na uh, pure nature, and my argument is that we cannot understand the perfection, perfection of Christ's human nature in its modal realization 
under grace, internal to the hypostatic union, if we cannot understand the essence of man as such, and then with it, a concept of pure nature. For example, we cannot understand the mode of perfection presence in Christ's human obedience, love, humility, and sinfulness, if we cannot understand something more generally about human freedom, obedience, and the virtues. Likewise, we cannot appreciate the supernatural mystery of Christ's suffering out of love for the Father and the human race in the crucifixion if we cannot understand something of the philosophical conundrum of human suffering and the distinctions of body and soul, as well as the enigma of death and the natural evil it represents. So I'm focusing so far on essential concepts of human nature regarding things like obedience, love, humility, uh, body, soul, suffering, death. And we could, we could multiply such examples, but the principal claim is clear. Catholic theology is committed to a kind of metaphysical realism concerning the nature of the human being as an epistemological presupposition for the rigorous intellectual commitment to Christological orthodoxy, which posits the perfection of Christ in our human nature. Now, this takes on an, a sort of special case acuity when we think about the concept of a state of pure nature. Now, here it's very important to recall that the, um, the notion of a state of pure nature is not identical with the notion of human nature essentially considered. I've been focusing thus far on human nature, but that's different than uh, or the concept of the human nature or the essence of human nature. That is a different concept than the concept of a state of pure nature. Human nature considered essentially is that nature we share in all its states or modes, whether we are speaking of Adamic nature before the fall or the fallen state of human nature subject to a state of sinfulness after the fall prior to redemption or the Christian state of life under grace where Christians are still human beings having essentially the same human nature as sinners or sinners and human beings are also equally human as Christians who are in a state of grace or the human nature of Christ for Christ is essentially human or the Virgin Mary for she's sinless but she's still human or the eschatological state of human nature after beatification and bodily resurrection for in the life to come redeemed uh, resurrected humanity is still human in all of these cases it's the same human nature we speak of as christ has the same human nature as adam before or after his fall from grace that's all the concept of the essence of human nature the state of pure nature by contrast pertains not to the essence of nature but to our human nature in a hypothet hypothetical state that Aquinas thinks never existed in history, but that might really have existed, you might say, as a, a modal metaphysical possibility. It could have existed in principle. This is a state without original grace, so nature without grace, and also without the effects of sin, nature without the effects of the fall. In short, God could have created us, had he so wished, in a state of nature not marked by grace, and prior to sin and its effects. Well, why bother oneself with this hypothetical mode or state of nature that has not ever existed? Precisely to call to mind two key truths. First, that grace is not integral to nature or due to nature, but is a gift given even from the beginning originally to men and angels to elevate human nature into friendship with God by participation in the divine nature. So even if we were created in a state of grace, which Aquinas affirms for both angels and human beings, we were thus created by a gratuity or a gift that, ex that is something 
in addition to the principles of nature per se. For we were created in a state of grace, and therefore by grace in a state that we don't have by pure nature, according to a mode of pure nature. Second, this notion of a state of pure nature serves to recall that sin is not natural, but entails a disfigurement of our nature. In that sense, I would argue our fallen state now is not purely natural, but pertains to, it it indicates disorders in our nature, or a nature that's, well, unstable and disfigured. These two truths are deeply interrelated to a true confession of Christ's identity, especially as human. Though he has a human nature essentially identical with that of all human beings in whatever historical state, his state of being human is one character, his way of being human is characterized by a plenitude of grace and by sinlessness. In his mode of being essentially human, he is therefore not inhuman, but is in fact most perfectly human, precisely because of the plenitude of grace he has, which Father Simon spoke about earlier, and also because he's sinless. The very notion that he has restored something lost in Adam and indeed elevated us beyond that original state of righteousness in some respects, both healing us in our humanity and elevating us in our supernatural life. All this contrasts with our sinfulness and our impotence when it comes to living eternal life by our own native capacities. And thus, the gratuity and, you might say, human perfection of Christ is key to understanding the history and meaning of redemption itself, what Christ offers to us in our humanity. To understand Christ as essentially one of us in human nature, who is unlike us in mode or state, is to also understand him as one who can effectively transform our state. We must be able in principle to think of nature as distinct from grace and distinct from sin. But if we are to do this, we can also, by definition, think of a state of pure nature. And thus we can also think of what Christ brings to us by in virtue of his state of a perfect plenitude of grace and a perfect state of sinlessness. So it turns out to think about Chalcedonian Christology coherently, we do need something like scholastic metaphysical notions pertaining to divine nature and human nature, and even the old and forbearing notion of the state of pure nature. Indeed, our Christological faith would seem to depend upon it. And so I say to conclude, reflection on Christology and philosophical reflection on metaphysics both take place in their distinctiveness from one another within a singular existential history in which they are integrated in a singular but multivalent Christian culture of faith and reason, of philosophy and theology. This life of reflection on Christological ontology occurs for the church first and foremost to clarify her confession of faith and in order to communicate it evangelically. That confession of faith is Christological. But by that very measure, it also takes place for the world at large, since it seeks to explain reality philosophically in light of Christ, and in relation to God's existence among us as a human being, and thus in conversation with all that is human. If the incarnation has a universal horizon of meaning and intelligibility so that all things are explained in light of Christ, then there must be a way in the church and in culture at large to think about, about to think about all that is philosophically in light of God 
and to think about the place of human nature within the larger framework of the existence of the world that God has made. Were this impossible on the natural level, we would, be in, we would become incapable of taking every thought subject to Christ, as St. Paul enjoins us to do in 2 Corinthians 10, so as to put our natural learning in subordination to and service of the supernatural life of grace in us. For these same reasons, the universal proclamation of the mystery of Christ requires not only a theoretical Christology, but also what we could term a metaphysical apostolate as a dimension of Christology. In concrete history, the church confesses Christ as both true God and true man in every generation. In doing so, she also has learned through the ages to speak of God and man naturally, that is to say, philosophically, in every generation in the service of the gospel and as a dimension of her own evangelical mandate. She must do so, so as to articulate the mystery of one person in two natures, Jesus Christ, true God and true man. For this is the only Orthodox Christology that there is. Thank you very much.